So we are in the second week of our Advent series. Advent really it means waiting. It's a, it's a time when the church uh, remembers the reality that, that we are waiting for the coming of the Lord. And as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, the first coming of Christ on Christmas Day, as we lead into Christmas, uh, we, are, we, we consciously remember that we too, just like ancient Israel was waiting for the coming of the Lord, we too are waiting for Christ to return and to rescue us from this evil age. And so there's a, there's a lament in that. You could hear that. I love that song we just played. There's a real lament that we experience. We know that this world is not as it should be. We know it's broken. We feel the weight of our own sin. We feel the weight of others' sin against us and sin in the world in general. And the, all of those things should cause us to take our eyes off of this world and the trinkets that it offers us and place our eyes on Jesus and his imminent return. Because that is our hope. And so as we go through this Advent season, we're going to be looking at a series of different prophecies from the Bible uh, that talk about that. Not just Jesus was born, not just God incarnated as man in Bethlehem, but that 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 project of God was in fact the beginning of the rejuvenation of the entire creation. So last week we looked at uh, a prophecy from early, very early in Genesis, and today we're going to move up a little farther down the timeline. Now uh, we're at to a prophecy at the end of Genesis. Uh, this is this, the time of this. The context of this is that Jacob, the patriarch, uh, is about to die. The fledgling Israel has just moved into Egypt. Seventy-two people as an incubator within which God is going to create them into a great nation to come back and move into the promised land. And at the end of, at the beginning of their stay in Egypt, Jacob is about to die, and he, 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 in the first long poem in the Bible, really, Jacob, as the leader of the clan, pronounces his blessing over his sons. And a couple of curses, too. Uh, and this section we're going to read right now is specifically his blessing towards Judah and the tribe of Judah, from which the Lord came. And in the midst of it, we're going to find out that this isn't just a blessing that uh, Jacob is pronouncing, but it is also a prophetic word, a stream of prophecy that trickles down and joins into the great rivers of prophetic themes throughout the Bible. Uh, And so as it turns out, this is a detailed prophecy of things to come. So let's listen. If you would please stand uh, as we give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. This is Genesis 49, 8 through 12. Uh, Judah, your brothers shall praise you, and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's club, cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from beneath his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choicest vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Um, if you remember, what, about a year ago, 
we had a, a sermon series called Epic Fails of the Patriarchs, where we looked at different patriarchs from the Old Testament and really showed what their lives were really like. They weren't these, these pristine, holy figures. They were really a lot like us. Uh, and if I were, I have this idea for a Sunday school class someday that I'd like to teach called Great Moments in in uh, great moments in biblical scholarship, which would kind of be like the same thing, kind of like a ju- in jest about big moments in biblical scholarship where everybody thought they had it totally right, but actually they had it completely wrong. And if I were to do that, I would do one class in particular on something called uh, the Tubingen School of Theology. There was a school of theology in Germany uh, in the 19th century, and basically they, what they taught their big claim to fame was they taught that Christianity as we've received it today isn't really uh, the accurate record of the life of Christ and the recollections of the apostles. Really, the New Testament uh, and Christianity as we've received it is the result of these warring tribes of Christianity, the, the Jewish Christian sect, the Gentile Christian sect, and as they went to war with each other about what Christianity was really all about, when the dust settled, there was this kind of synthesis of Christian thought, and that's what went into the writing of the New Testament, two centuries after the life of Christ and the life of the apostles. So it really wasn't accurate, it was just mythology and story that they kind of recrafted uh, into what we know as Christianity today. Um, And here's the point, for about a hundred years, peaking out from 1840 all the way into the early 19th century, for about a hundred years, the Tubingen School churned out hundreds of thousands of pages of PhD documents, dissertations, and articles, and books, and peer-reviewed journal articles, all proving with airtight logic that the New Testament... And the writings of the apostles had to be and absolutely were the product of second century authors around 200 AD. And everybody bought it. Everybody completely bought it because the internal logic seemed so cohesive, right? Everybody bought it until one unfortunate event occurred. In 1934, somebody discovered a big fragment of the Gospel of John called, called the John Rylands fragment that experts dated around the turn of the first century, 90 to 110 AD. And with that one discovery, 100,000 pages of PhD dissertations just went up in smoke. <laughs> Great moments in biblical scholarship. <laughs> now... Uh, there's a, I found this quote on, in Wikipedia, believe it or not. <laughs> listen to this. It's classic. They buried it like on page 10 in a footnote somewhere, but listen to what they say. It says, it says, the Tubigen School was at the height of its influence in the 1840s, but lost ground to historical fact. <laughs> Isn't that great? I mean, that's a super honest statement, right? Wow. What's the moral of the story? Why am I telling you this story? The moral of the story is this, is that for something to be true, it can't, it has to, it, it, it's not enough 
for it to have internal logical coherence or consistency. It also has to correspond with reality. Those are two big criteria. It has to be internally coherent, meaning it has to be internally consistent with itself, which all of those papers from the Tubingen School were, but it also has to be correspondent with reality. In other words, it has to match what reality really is. And that fragment of the Gospel of John, dated 90 to 100 AD, proved that it, wasn't, it didn't line up with reality, and so it was false. Two of those things, both of those things have to be true for, in order for something to be true. And the point of it is that the Bible has both of those things. The prophetic record in the Bible shows us that it's there, the Bible's not only internally consistent with itself, but it is also it is, it is in line with reality. It's in line with historical fact. And that's important for us because that shows us the Bible can be trusted. And if the Bible can be trusted, it means that the promises that are in it that God has given us are true. And not just true, but true for us personally. And that's our hope in the middle of this evil age where there's so much chaos and pressure from the world to abandon the teaching of the Bible. We can look at it uh, with honest, open eyes and see that it proves itself to be true. And so this, this chapter, this passage that we've just read uh, is a prophecy. It's a prophecy that moves, uh, that, that joins up with all the other prophecy in the Bible and, the, a prophecy, and those prophetic streams are actually verified by historical fact and that is, what, that is what gives us hope that God's promises are true for us. And so the big idea, the big picture of this passage that we're going to look at uh, is that because the Bible is internally consistent and lines up with reality, we can rejoice that the promises of God are true for us. So let's look at that at one part at a time. The first, uh, because the Bible is internally consistent. Uh, I like to vacate. I like to go on high, um, hiking mountains in eastern Sierras. We used to do Mount Whitney and climb Half Dome once a year, and especially with Whitney. And, and uh, one of my favorite things about the trip is, is just is the, is the beauty of of the environment and and one of the most beautiful things about the environment for me is to see the snow uh, on the caps of the mountains that's melting and forming these little tiny streams that come down over the rocks and then you can see the streams joining one another into bigger streams and then those streams joining together into a big river that then goes down the mountain and down the valley to see all of those little streams joining up into the beauty of, of the river of that of that clear crystal beautiful water it's just beautiful. And that is how prophecy works in the Bible. There are, uh, we, when we talk about prophecy in the Bible, we say that it's organic, meaning that it builds upon itself. It starts with these little streams of prophecy that as we move through the timeline of the Bible, those little streams of prophecy gather together from various points and form big rivers of prophetic themes that then move all the way through the text. It's organic. It continually builds upon itself. And this prophecy that we're looking at today is a very early prophecy uh, from Genesis 49. It's one, of the, it's one of the headwaters. 
It's one of the small streams that then join up into the bigger rivers of prophetic reality, the internal consistency of the Bible itself. Let me run through quickly what this is saying and show you the stream that join and how it joins into the river, okay? The first part of this that we just read, verse 8 and 9, is pretty self-explanatory. It talks about Judah is going to be preeminent over Israel and that Judah is like a lion, which is a picture of being the top of the food chain. He has no enemies. He's powerful. No one can assault him. Uh, Where it starts to get really interesting is at verse 10. So I'm going to start focusing on verse 10. It says this. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The first stream, first stream is, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from beneath his feet. That actually says two things. The first part, it talks about the scepter shall not depart from Judah. It talks about kingship or a king arising from the tribe of Judah. And the second part, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet is actually, uh, it's a Hebrew euphemism for uh, creating progeny. <laughs> you can like put the pieces, you can, you can connect the dots. What it really is saying is that they will, not, they will not lack a descendant in the line of this Judean king, in this Judean dynasty. There will always be a, a, a Judean king on the throne. And so that stream starts kind of here and then joins up other little streams throughout the Bible and eventually becomes the prophetic river of God talking about a king arising from Judah and creating an eternal dynasty. And the culmination, one of the big, I mean, there's lots of prophecies throughout the text as it goes on that talks about this reality, but really one of the big ones, the culminating ones, is in 2 Samuel 7 where God promises David the Judean king who has risen to power, that he will establish David's kingdom and his throne forever. Listen, this is what it says. God says to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The second stream. Second stream is where it says, until tribute comes to him. And we're going to talk about this for a quick minute. Uh, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here, but there's a couple of different ways that exegetes translate this particular verse. If you have an ESV Bible, like we use here, it'll say, uh, until tribute comes to him. And really the, the meaning behind that is that this eventual king that will arise out of the land of Judah will receive tribute from all the nations around him. It's really a picture of the Judean king ruling over the whole world. However, if you have an NIV or an NLT Bible or uh, several other different Bibles, the translation of it, and I think this is a better translation, is uh, it says, let me read the NLT version. It says, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs. 
In other words, sometime in the future, they will arise this eternal Judean king to whom uh, uh, the kingdom will be granted. Uh, and that stream follows these other little streams that form this prophetic river of the promise of an eternal king that God gives throughout the Old Testament. And that finds its culmination pretty much in Isaiah 9.9, where Isaiah prophesies, again, big picture, lots more clarity because he's farther down the timeline. Isaiah says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now remember, that's, he's writing this 200, 300 years after David. This is talking about that king, that eternal king that God promises will arise from David's line at about 700 AD is when he's saying this. And then the third stream, third stream is the last part of that verse. It says, and to him, this eternal king that rises up out of David's dynasty, to him be the obedience of the peoples. And the peoples is not the nation of Israel. That's talking about all nations. And that stream comes out from there and is joined by all these other little prophetic streams throughout the Bible that forms this giant river of prophetic this prophetic theme that talks about that this eternal king that brings in this eternal kingdom will rule and reign and bring salvation to the entire world. This Judean Davidic king. It's probably starting to sound a little bit familiar already, right? Uh, And this, the culmination of that big stream of prophecy is so numerous, it's hard to even pick you know, a culminating passage out. It was like five or six passages I wanted to put in here, but I ran out of space. So let me give you two. Psalm 22, this is a, a psalm explicitly about the Messiah. It says, at the end of the earth, it says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And Isaiah 49, uh, 6 says, Is it too light a thing that you, my servant, that, that, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring them back, uh, the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So what's the point of all that? And we got in the weeds a little bit. The big point of that was that Genesis 49 There are these little streams, these beginning kernels of prophecy that then feed into the Bible as time goes on, more little rivulets of other prophecies join together and they become major themes of prophecy that connect all of the Old Testament together. And the point of that is that these these prophecies of an eternal king, an eternal kingdom, uh, over whom all the earth will worship, who brings salvation to all the earth, all of those prophecies in the Bible from beginning of the Old Testament to the end are all internally consistent with each other. They all make perfect sense 
in and of themselves. They all relate to each other. They organically move uh, and, and continue to increase in clarity as the Bible moves on. And it shows us that the Bible itself, in the prophecies that it speaks, is internally consistent, telling one basic story from the beginning to the end that God will raise up a king. The king will be eternal. He will reign over an eternal kingdom. And that that king from the Davidic line will bring salvation to the whole world and rule over the world forever. And so it's consistent, internally consistent. But as I showed you with the Tubigen school stuff, that's not enough. It also has to correspond with reality. And that's the second part. The Bible is internally consistent and second, it also lines up with reality. You know, as we talked about last week about this, if you go to any Bible, if you go to a major university and you take a Bible class, basically what you're going to get is something kind of similar to the Tubingen School, even though they've completely come out of favor. You're going to get the idea that the Bible itself is this cut and paste uh, compilation of old myth and stories that has been put together by later religious writers and then reinterpreted to mean what they want it to mean. Uh, and that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of, in- that, that idea that that would happen makes sense because it's based on truth. There's a lot of, there's, that happens a lot, right? Uh, for example, Nostradamus, what, what this one article I read talked about Nostradamus being the father of all predictions of the future. All kinds of people read Nostradamus and then kind of reinterpret it and read into it the meanings that they want to come up with these prophecies of the future and everybody goes, wow, that's amazing. But they don't really fit. Nostradamus' prophecies are so general and kind of ambiguous, they don't really fit together. Uh, and so that, that thing that, you know, Bible classes will accuse... Now, the Bible of being has a ring of truth from it and it all makes perfect internal set with one another except, except for three very unfortunate events. Well, to us, very fortunate. But to that line of thinking, very unfortunate. And those three things are the Davidic dynasty, Jesus, and the church. First, the Davidic dynasty. Uh, there is all sorts of archaeological evidence of the reality of the, of the Davidic dynasty. There really was a David. There really was a Davidic kingship. Uh, there really was a Davidic dynasty where Davidic kings were on the throne of David all the way through history. Uh, which means that the prophecy, that those streams of prophecy became reality. It became historical fact. And if that was all the prophecies talked about, that first tier of fulfillment in David and his kingdom uh, and his dynasty, if that were all the prophecies talked about, in, that in and of itself would be amazing. But it goes on from there. It talks about that eternal descendant, the eternal king that comes from the Davidic line, which is Jesus. The book of Matthew, the first chapter of Matthew is the point of that book of Matthew is to prove that Jesus is the descendant of this Davidic line. 
He is the reality. He is the historical fact of all those prophetic realities coming true. Uh, And if we're confused about that, if we're confused about that or what this prophecy from Genesis 49 is really all about, we can look we can look to the Jews of the time around Jesus. The Jews, uh, the Jews all are so helpful to us Gentiles in understanding oftentimes what's going on in the Old Testament. For example, uh, whenever you know, we're confused about whether Jesus, uh, what's happening with Jesus, whether he spoke what the Jews thought were blasphemy or not, they would pick up rocks and try to kill him. And that was like, that's the cue for us. They considered that to be blasphemy. Well, To the Jews, in their understanding of this prophecy, the scepter, it meant the tribal staff. Think about Moses and his staff. And that staff of Moses was the power uh, of the power of Judah, of the kingship, to enforce the Mosaic law, including, uh, including capital punishment for violations of the Mosaic law. And we know from Jewish writings of the time of, around the time of Jesus, Uh, from the Talmud, it said that some 40 years before the destruction of the temple, Israel, Judah, the Sanhedrin, it lost the power of capital punishment. Now, 40 years before the destruction of the temple, do the math on that. What would that be? Destruction of the temple, 70 AD minus 40, about 30 AD. The Jewish authorities lost what they considered to be the scepter. Uh, And in the Talmud, it's also chronicled in a, in a, in a book about uh, Jesus' trial, Jesus before the Sanhedrin. It says, it says, when the members of the Sanhedrin found themselves deprived of their right over life and death, a general consternation took possession of them, and they covered their heads with ashes and their bodies with sackcloth, and the Sanhedrin of the Jews walked around the streets of Jerusalem saying, Woe unto us, for the scepter has departed from Judah, And the Messiah has not yet come. Little did they know that somewhere in Galilee around that time there was an itinerant preacher who would be preaching about the kingdom and that their destinies would meet within a matter of years on the cross where Jesus ushered in the eternal kingdom promised in that very prophecy. And the third unfortunate reality for that whole idea of the Bible being this cut and paste or not reliable is the church. That prophetic river predicting that one day all the nations of the world would worship the Jewish God. To me, that's like the most amazing, that's almost the most amazing prophecy, amazing river of prophecy of all. Because I mean, think of, the, think of the odds of that. Israel was an unimportant kingdom, and yet their prophets were consistently, over centuries, exclaiming, all of the world is going to come and worship our God. And it happened. It happened. What are the odds of that? And here's the thing. It's not just... It's not just that prophetic river. It's not just the, you know, we talk a lot about all the prophecies of Jesus, the coming of Christ, who he would be, what he would do. Uh, the 300 some odd prophecies of that, and when you work the math out, 
the, you know, the chances of one guy fulfilling all that prophecy is a hundred quadrillion to one. It's not just that stream of prophecy. It's stacked on top of that with these streams of prophecy of an eternal kingdom, the stream of prophecy of the church, of the stream of prophecy of all the nations worshiping Israel's God. All of those things stacked up together shows that that intricate internal matrix of prophecy in the Bible that is consistent with itself also matches up with reality. It has become historical fact, which means that it's reliable. And that's the third, third point, is, is that we can rejoice that the promises of God are true for us. So what's the point? I mean, we're kind of just drug you through the weeds of all these internal prophecies in the Old Testament, how they fit together, how they became historical fact. Is that just so that we can like ooh and awe at the amazing Bible and how, how amazing it is that God can predict the future and do it with such accuracy? It's not just so that we can be amazed at God. It's to give us comfort. It's to give us strength in the midst of this evil age. There is a consistent theme, a consistent theme throughout the scriptures that, that, that calls us to look to God's faithfulness in the past as the evidence and assurance of his faithfulness for us in the future. Uh, because God has shown himself to be able to tell the end from the beginning and then bring those predictions into historical reality that we can verify it means that all the promises left on the books about Jesus coming back and rescuing us are just as reliable and are, are absolutely going to be fulfilled. And maybe, you know, maybe you... And that is what gives us hope and comfort. Maybe you're in a rough spot right now. Maybe um, the grind of life has taken your eyes off of Christ and you're suffering or distraught over the, 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 the circumstances of your life. Maybe you've got money problems. Maybe you've got, you know, you're heartbroken. Maybe uh, just the grind of life and the weight of your own sin pressing in upon you is so overwhelming that you think nothing is going to ever come and save you and help you out of that problem. If it weren't for this prophetic stream, if it weren't for the historical reality that comes from it, the hope that something would come and save us and rescue us would be nothing more than a wish. It would be a hope. We would be like hyping each other up. But the fact of God's promises coming to reality, it gives us hope that no matter what we're suffering through right now, no matter how hard life may be, no matter what circumstances are pressing in against us, we can know that God's promises for us will come true. And here's where this passage gets really good. The last couple of verses, uh, it says, last couple of verses say this. It says in verses 11 and 12, it says, it says that this, you know, it says this eternal ruler binding his foal to the vine and his donkey to the colt his, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. 
His eyes are darker than wine. His teeth are whiter than milk. This, this is a picture. This is what this is. This is a picture of an eternal kingdom that is so prosperous, that is so free from want, that is so free from lack, that you could take a, your donkey, which is an expensive animal, and tie it up to the choicest wine, or wine vine, grapevine, and not even worry that the donkey is going to eat the vine and eat all the grapes on that vine because you have so much wealth and prosperity. That's the picture that an Israelite in that day and age would have got from that. He would have been like, whoa, whoa, you can't tie the donkey up to the vine. He's going to eat all the grapes. If he eats the grapes, you won't have any money. You can't sell anything. You'll, go, you'll, you'll starve to death. You can't do that. But he's, this, it's, the whole point of it is this picture of this new kingdom, this eternal kingdom is going to be so prosperous you could tie your donkey straight up to the vine, not even worry about the fact that he's going to eat all the grapes because you've got so many, you don't even trip. And that wine will be so plentiful, wine, which is a sign of wealth, wine will be so plentiful that you could use it to wash your clothes because you've got so much. I mean, think about, like, think about it in our terms. Think about like a... Uh, I don't know, maybe this is a bad analogy, but this is, what, this is how I understand it, like a rap video where the rap star like rolls his Lamborghini up onto the perfectly manicured front lawn and then lights a Cuban cigar with a $100 bill and just steps back. So much prosperity. So much security. The picture of a world where we will have no lack of any, anything. We will be so physically, so spiritually, so emotionally satisfied and cared for that we've got nothing to worry about. And here's the, you know, and, and it's not just for the elite. It's not just for the rap star. It's not just for the rich and famous. It's a picture of everyone being brought into that kingdom everyone being brought into that reality of no want, no lack of complete satisfaction in what we have in Christ and in the kingdom that he has ushered in. There's one, one last question that I want to touch on is, is that I think this, this, this prophecy touches on is, is how, how, how does this great age of prosperity come about? What makes it happen? Who pays for all that? Well, I mean, obviously your mind probably caught the donkey and the donkey's foal, which is a kind of an illusion. It ties into another prophetic stream about Jesus' triumphal entry from Zechariah 9.9. But there's this other phrase that just caught my eye as I was reading through it. and None of the other commentaries seem to pick up on this, but but this is a picture of this eternal king who has washed his vesture in the blood of grapes. I just couldn't get that out of my brain. You know, vesture is, is a pretty rare word in the Old Testament. It's a, it's, a, it's a rare word that has these tie-ins with priestly garments. And so really it's a picture of, uh, of priestly garments that are soaked by the eternal king in the blood of grapes. And I can't help but see in that a picture of our eternal high priest in his priestly garments as our eternal king 
washing those vestments in the, his own blood as he suffers and dies on the cross to bring us this age of prosperity that is so richly defined in this text. And the beautiful thing about it is it's not a guess, it's not a desperate hope, it's not a wish, it's not a click our heels together and wish for no place like home. It's something that is not only internally consistent within the Old Testament as in intricate matrices of prophecies join one another in these major streams of prediction about Jesus, about the church, about the coming kingdom, but it's also promises that are rooted in historical reality. There was a Davidic kingship. That Davidic kingship resulted in Jesus Jesus' life, death, and resurrection promise that he is the eternal king. The, the, the worship of Israel's God did spread throughout the whole earth. And because all of that is true, we can know that that eternal prosperous kingdom that's promised to us in this passage is absolutely true. And it's true for us. Amen? Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the beauty and power of your word. Lord, as the world presses in upon us, as so many clever ideas and schools of thought try to take away from the the knowledge and the beauty and the reliability of your word, we thank you, Lord, that you have told the end from the beginning uh, in such astonishing detail that we cannot deny that the, the source behind the Bible was supernatural. It's supernatural intelligence. And so therefore, it is more reliable than any idea of man, no matter how brilliant it may be. Lord, as we have watched in the, the, the intellectual work of the smartest people on our planet consistently implode as it hits the reality presented in your word and the reality of the word that you've given us, We can have hope, Lord, that you are coming back to rescue us and that we can wait in the meantime knowing that you will care for us now and that we can dedicate ourselves to worshiping you and trusting in you so that we can begin to enjoy uh, the beauty of the eternal kingdom even now. And so, Lord, we thank you and praise you. We help us to be courageous and to trust in these things in Jesus' name. Amen.